Here's the deal for nonprofit leaders. Most of us were called to do this work because we wanted to make a difference. When we started out, we were inspired by the belief that we could improve our communities for the better. Now, let's not allow the challenges, chatter, and chaos of the daily work to distract us from passionately pursuing our vision for a better future. Welcome to Life and Leadership with Kim Williams. I'm the CEO of Interfaith Family Services, a nonprofit that provides housing, help, and hope for families facing homelessness. I'm also the principal of Kim Williams Consulting, a change management firm that empowers nonprofits to change for the better. And I'm the author of Diary of an Insecure CEO, How I Went from Feeling Rejected to Raising Millions. I've led through a variety of organizational issues while raising over $50 million to fight poverty and learning a lot in the process. I created this podcast to share those lessons and help you to successfully navigate life and leadership. So let's get started. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Life and Leadership with Kim Williams. I am so excited today to talk to you about understanding the needs of your target demographic. So last week, I told you the story of how Interfaith Family Services, the organization that I am a CEO of, narrowed our target demographic from homeless families to working class single moms who are experiencing homelessness. I shared how research, environment, and resources pointed to the fact that this demographic would be best served by us, given that the working poor is the most underserved demographic of the poor, and that our East Dallas community has a high concentration of working poor families. Then I provided tips for how you can define or refine your target demographic. But now this week, I want to talk about understanding the needs and nuances of your target demographic in order to create an organizational methodology or logic model to address those needs. But first, you know me, I want to begin with a story. A few weeks after I started as CEO of Interfaith Family Services, I was sitting in my office when I heard the career services bell ring. Now, back then, it was a tradition to ring the bell whenever someone got a job. So I heard the bell ring, and I got up and went to congratulate the client. As I walked into career services, employees and clients were gathered in a circle, listening as the manager explained that one of our clients had gotten a new job. She went on to share how the job was at a local pharmacy and how this client would earn $9 an hour. Everyone began to clap, and I whispered to that client's case manager, who just happened to be standing next to me, how many kids does she have? The case manager replied, two. And I thought to myself, how in the world is she supposed to make ends meet making only $9 an hour? Later that day, I met with the career services manager and asked for the average wage of all the clients that we'd helped find jobs in the last fiscal year. The average wage was just about $9. I believe it was exactly $9.46 an hour. I'll never forget it. 
Now, that's not hardly enough for a single mom of two to make ends meet, and a single mom of two represented our average client. So when I considered our mission, which at the time was to help homeless families to achieve self-sufficiency, I realized that we were failing to do that in a real or sustainable way. So I held a leadership meeting to discuss the barriers that were keeping our families, working poor, single moms, from achieving sustainable self-sufficiency. And through a series of meetings, we found that there were several key factors that we were uniquely poised to address. The first thing is stable housing or the lack of stable housing was difficult for them. Sufficient income, obviously, um, making $9 an hour just was not was a big barrier for them. And also not having a saving safety net when crisis struck. So having to choose from a repair or a medical bill um, instead of rent whenever crisis hit. So through our work, we were able to provide free transitional housing for homeless families to deal with the stable housing issue. Our housing includes utilities, furnishings, food, clothing, childcare, and counseling. With our help, single moms in crisis could take a once in a lifetime breather and use it to really rebuild their lives. So that takes us to the next S, which was um, sufficient outcome. So prior to my arrival at Interfaith, the objective was to get jobs as soon as possible. But those jobs, as we've said, didn't pay enough and they lacked benefits. And many of them did not have schedule stability that they needed to be present for the children. So given that our families had stable free housing for at least six to 12 months as a result of our program, we thought it would make sense to provide access to career training and career coaching that could elevate our clients' salary while they're in the program. So as a result, we added career training and certification program options to do just that. And now our average client wage is nearly $20 an hour, just over, I believe, $20 an hour this year. So as a result of understanding the barriers that our clients face, our long-term success rate went from 50 clients remaining self-sufficient, 50%, I'm sorry, of our clients remaining self-sufficient one year after graduation to 89% today. We knew that we couldn't do everything, but we also knew that if we did a few things well, it would be life-changing for our clients, and it was. It was also empowering for us as an organization. Now, listen, I'm not going to lie to you. Making the cultural shift from helping families to survive to helping families thrive was a difficult one. Some of our employees didn't think that that type of radical change was possible for our clients. And when I announced it to the board, most of them were really excited, but there were a few long timers that said they doubted that this type of change was possible. Most of the organizations that I knew served homeless families who transitioned into Section 8 housing. This was definitely the case for us when I arrived. But we believe that working class families with the right support could transition into non-subsidized housing, which would not limit savings, assets, or future earnings, thus promoting upward mobility. It was a bold shift in our logic model, a shift that many people doubted and some even criticized. However, we believed that If we did this, 
it would take both our clients and our organization to an entirely new level. And it did. So by looking at the needs of our target demographic, looking at the key barriers to their long-term self-sufficiency and creating a methodology to address those key barriers was transformational. Now let's talk about how. Let's talk about how we did that. Let's talk strategy. All right, so let's talk about how you can refine or modify your existing methodology to address the key barriers that your core constituent faces. So what I want I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you three questions that'll help you make these changes or modify your program in a way that's going to help you be more effective. Question number 1. What does fulfilling your mission look like practically for your clients? I'm going to say that again. What does fulfilling your mission look like practically for your clients? This is the question that I asked my leadership team when I arrived at Interfaith. If our goal was to help clients achieve self-sufficiency, which was our mission, we needed to define the attributes of self-sufficiency as it related to families. I asked them if dependence on TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Family, and food stamps was self-sufficiency. I asked them if dependence on subsidized housing was self-sufficiency. I asked them if the inability to cover one's expenses and have money left over at the end of the month was self-sufficiency. We all agreed that while supports like TANF and Section 8 housing are necessary for many families to survive and avoid homelessness and hunger, it is not quite self-sufficiency, which was, again, our mission. It was survival. And the truth of the matter is that we were helping our clients to survive homelessness at that point, but we were not helping them to achieve self-sufficiency. So I asked them if we wanted to change our mission to reflect our current outcomes or if we wanted to change our outcomes to reflect our mission. Either would work. I just wanted us to be honest with ourselves and our community about our intended impact. So we boldly decided to change our actions to reflect our mission and we established new client targets. So that goes back to that question. What does fulfilling your mission look like practically? So for example, we changed our employment goal from simply helping our clients to obtain a job to helping our clients obtain employment with a livable wage. Then we also added a debt reduction goal geared toward eliminating eviction and high interest debt prior to graduation. We also added a savings safety net goal to make sure that each family exited with the funds to manage a crisis and still pay their bills should one arise. We also helped our families to identify affordable non-subsidized housing to ensure no future limits on assets or earnings. We also added a quarterly graduation tracking system to monitor the long-term effects of our programming for up to three years post-graduation. And the rest, um, as they say, is history. Now, let me just say, it was harder and more of a struggle than I thought it would be. 
But today I can honestly say that we are fulfilling our mission. We are helping families to achieve self-sufficiency. Now we've revised our mission to empower families to break the cycle of poverty because that's our ultimate goal. But with that being said, it's really important that you look at, are we practically fulfilling our mission? And if not, does our mission need to change or do we need to change? And again, either is acceptable, but the goal is to become true to what you say you're going to do so that you can do it better. Number two, the next question that I'll ask you is, what barriers do your clients face that often present, prevent them from achieving the desired results? So let me say that again. What barriers do your clients face that often prevent them from achieving the desired results? Here's where you have to talk to your clients, hold a focus group, and really get to know them and the obstacles they face. As you do, common things will emerge. Some of them you will not be able to address or solve, but others you can. For example, when we talked to the single moms that we serve, we found that most had aspirations of continuing their education past high school, but having children interrupted those aspirations and changed their focus from pursuing some of those career goals to feeding their families today. Many did not have the consistent assistance from their child's father, putting the weight of their child's care on them, leaving little room to pursue career training goals or other dreams. So we needed to understand what that mom was facing and then come up with program components that allowed us to help her address those barriers and struggles so she could focus on reaching her goals. And that's where having zero to 18 onsite childcare came in for us. That's where the career training options and paying for some of those certification programs and things came in for our program, for our programming is by understanding that she wants to be successful, but here's why she's had a hard time doing so. And how can we address those things? Finally, the last question is, you must ask, what programs and services do we have in place to address those barriers for success? While we couldn't fix our single mom's relationships with their um, child's father or forced fathers to help, we could provide support by way of free child care for moms looking for work and affordable child care um, for working moms. We could provide supplemental income in the form of rent assistance or temporary housing that would allow mom to complete a certification program or career training to elevate her wages without having to worry about how to make ends meet in the interim. We could provide financial coaching to help mom reduce and eliminate debt. Yes, she was coming to us for rent assistance or for housing, and we could give her a check to help her survive a few more months, or we could pair that check with programming that would empower her to earn the income she needed to thrive long-term. For me, the highest outcome of service is transformation. Let me say that again. The highest outcome of service is transformation. While I realize that it cannot always be achieved and that survival is always the first priority, I also believe that crisis can be a catalyst for long-term success when it's paired with resources, training, and support needed for future prevention. It's like Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50 and 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done, saving many lives. 
Our role as nonprofit leaders and social engineers is to transform bad situations into life-saving ones that break the cycle of poverty and inspire new generations of youth to realize their potential and achieve their goals. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves on a hamster wheel of helping the same people over and over again, expending energy, using resources, but failing to reduce poverty, fight homelessness, or improve educational outcomes in any significant way. So you may be thinking, our nonprofit is designed to provide emergency services, and it's challenging for us to do that. How can we realistically move into prevention, from intervention to prevention? Well, let me give you an example. Say you have a food pantry, and it takes everything you've got to feed the people who come to you, let alone give them the resources they need to no longer come to you. I understand that. But you can also have case managers who help them sign up for food subsidies or refer them to proven programs that provide training and elevate incomes or financial coaching to help them create a more sustainable budget. You can create compelling flyers or referral cards and place them in the boxes and bags of food items. You can offer special incentives to clients who use those referrals, such as shopping pass privileges or special shopping days or access to special items as a reward for following through on these referrals. You can partner with referral agencies and share their outcomes for your clients, which will boost your ability to secure future funding. This is just one example of how you can go from intervention to prevention with a few minor but in fact impactful programming changes. And as a shameless plug, I'd be happy to give you more tips as your consultant. Visit kimwconsulting.com and book a consultation to learn how I can help you take your programming to the next level. Now, before I close out this podcast, I want to give you this final word of encouragement. Here's the deal, nonprofit leaders. Most of us were called to do this work to make a difference. When we started out, we were inspired by the belief that we could improve our communities for the better. Now, let's not allow the challenges, chatter, and chaos of the daily work to distract us from passionately pursuing our vision for a better future. Ask yourself, Are we making a real and lasting difference in the lives of our clients? And do we have the measurable results to prove it? If the answer is yes, keep up the good work. If the answer is no, it's time to get to work. It's time to reevaluate the way that you do business. Consider the changes needed to address the core issues that bring your clients to your door in the first place. Ask yourself if restructuring or modifying programs will empower you to address the root causes or if actively partnering with another organization will ensure that there is a real continuum of care in place that will gradually reduce the number of returning clients and allow you to share in the positive outcomes that the partner organization is poised to produce. Meeting the immediate need is an important and essential step to solving societal issues such as poverty, homelessness, food insecurity, health disparities, and the like. But make no mistake about it, it is not the solution. 
we must pair intervention with services that prevent our clients from returning to us in the future. Now, it's not easy, but it is our responsibility as change agents. As I said earlier, if you need my help doing so, give me a call. But whether or not you use my services, it is my sincere hope that you're inspired to take your services to the next level by creating a pathway for more measurable, significant, and sustainable change. It is the only hope that our society has for changing for the better. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come thanking you so much for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to serve your people. We thank you for the power and the resources and the potential and the strategy to do good work. Your word says that the harvest is ripe and the laborers are few. Help us to be good laborers. Help us to be strategic laborers. Help us to be laborers who do more than most because we seek insight, strategy, and wisdom from you. Give us the power that um, puts your super to our natural and allows us to multiply our impact as a result. There's so many people that need help, so many communities that need transforming. And we pray that you would position us to be your agent in the earth. And so we thank you for it now. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Today's tips can be found on my website, kimwconsulting.com. Just click the resource tab in the menu. You can also find information about my consulting services and upcoming events and subscribe to my monthly life and leadership newsletter. If you found this podcast helpful, please share, rate, and subscribe. Thank you for listening. And remember, change is inevitable, but changing for the better isn't. Change wisely. Change wisely.